My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Last week, I was able to interview Jeremy Sherman. He agreed after, uh, after we stopped the recording of that episode, we had a nice conversation and, and there was just so much more to talk about that uh, he agreed to come back on. And if you remember, uh, Jeremy is uh, the author of What's Up With Assholes? Advanced Psychoproctology for Beginners. And that's really going to lead into our discussion today. Really, once once you've, uh, as a beginner psychoproctologist, um, once you've diagnosed an asshole, um, what do you what do you do with that? And and so, uh, if you are not familiar with with what I'm talking about, go back, listen to last week's episode and, and it'll get you up to speed. Um, otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation because I'm sure it's going to be a good one. So, uh, Jeremy, thank you again for, for coming on. Nice to be here. And, um, and you don't have to go back and listen. We can do a quick review um, of, of where I was going, uh, what, what we were talking about last week. So, Psychoproctology is a name I came up with, uh, a light name for a very serious subject. And I could frame it this way, in a free, adaptive society, you don't get to tell people how they have to, how they have to live. I mean, you can come up with whatever version of how people should live you like, but uh, live and let live. And if you don't like uh, living with someone, live elsewhere. I mean, the freedom of dissociation. So in a free society, you can't tell people how to live but you still have to put a leash. You have to somehow curb, um, you could say, asshole behavior or else it won't remain a free adaptive society. So that led me to two big questions. What is a butthead, since it can't be just whoever I happen to butt heads with? There's what's a more objective way to think about diagnosing someone as being an asshole. And then the second question is how do you prevent or stop them without becoming an asshole yourself. So we spent some time in the last uh, interview talking about how you would diagnose an asshole. And I, but, but it's worth actually getting into it a little bit further because it's really hard. Uh, the natural tendency is to think that anybody who stubbornly disagrees with you is an asshole. And that leads to the kind of asshole on asshole battles that we've got all over the world these days. You know, opponents absolutely certain that their opponents are the real assholes. So, um, and a lot of the ways that we think we can diagnose them don't really work. Um, can you diagnose them by their personal histories? Like, are, are, are they always the people who have a chip on the shoulder? 
or always the people who have been in, felt entitled all the all life long? Are they? No, I wouldn't say either of them. You can become an a hole. I'll call them a holes here um, uh, by any number of means. So I so I mean I could list, and in the second chapter of my book is just listing all of the all of the ways in which actually the third chapter, the second chapter is why people say you shouldn't study a-holes because everybody's an asshole because no one's an asshole or you shouldn't call people names or all this sort of stuff the third chapter i'm saying these are all the common ways we think we can diagnose them and they don't work um uh you know they make bad decisions oh yeah it's true that a-holes will tend to make bad decisions but any of us can end up with decisions that turn out bad that kind of thing so then i go into okay well let's diagnose them from uh, their origins and let's start way back with the origins of life and people struggling, uh, organisms struggling for their own existence. They need energy to do that, which means that they're going to interact selectively with their environment. They have to take in some energy, keep uh, take in some things and leave out others. You have to eat food, not poison. Then when you get language in humans, you find that same behavior going on around uh, self-motivation. You need to take in ideas that affirm you you're going to be more inclined to take in ideas that affirm you or confirm what you believe, and you're going to try to dismiss ideas that don't affirm you, that basically degenerate your mojo. That is, no one likes to get negative feedback. We, we all tend to speed read hate letters. You know, It's just hard to take that stuff in, and that's true of all of us. But normal people recognize that about themselves to some extent, and so they recognize that confirmation bias is something they have to manage in themselves. That is, sometimes you got to take in criticism. Sometimes you eat, eat that bitter pill of feedback, negative feedback. I would argue that assholes or a-holes are people who have found a formula for treating confirmation bias as the solution to all of their problems. That is, they have found simple ways to ignore all challenges to their authority to their self-certainty um, and, and take in anything that will affirm them. Um, it's got nothing to do with what they believe. It's more how they strut it, as if it's final, as if it's the formula. So when you were saying, uh, how, do you, uh, how does a beginner, it, once you as a beginning psychoproctologist diagnose someone as an a-hole, I would actually say we're all budding psychoproctologists. We're all kind of obsessed with the whole a-hole question. But to get serious about it, you got to get behind, but beyond the basic intuitive ways of thinking about it. You know, all liberals are a-holes, all conservatives are a-holes, or anybody who's had a rough childhood and a chip on the shoulder or all that, and really try and understand what makes someone an a-hole. So how would you diagnose them in real practical terms? Well, there are a variety of ways, but one of the main ones I would suggest is if no matter what you say, they have a way of claiming triumph or victory over it, either by dismissing it or by flipping it around so it's, I know you are, but what am I? There's a good chance that you're dealing with someone who is engaging in this kind of behavior. Um, uh, they will tend to uh, parrot standard arguments that don't really have, they're not paying attention to what they mean, they're mostly paying attention to their effectiveness. That is. I think more than we notice, uh, if you stumble on a good uh, on a way of saying something that gets you what you want in a marriage, in politics, in religion, whatever, um, you'll remember that it'll become a habit, a reliable habit of saying it or things like it. 
So there's a, there's a bunch of basic habits. In fact, I list about 85 standard moves you'll get from uh, assholes. And by this time, I have actually defined them. I've given them a different name. And here's the name I've given them. I call them Trump bots. A asshole is a Trump bot. And I do not mean Donald Trump, even though he is a perfect Trump bot. It turns out he has a name that means two things. Trump means to be fake. That is basically bullshit, not caring what's true. That is trumped up. Trumped up charges means fake charges. So, um, and Trump also means to beat everything. You know, it, it's a, a Trump card. So basically the fake gives you freedom to do whatever you want. And the Trump card enables you to claim victory no matter what you've done. And that's exactly what a human would want. We would want perfect freedom to do anything we want, to follow our impulse desires. And we would want to be safe no matter what we did. We don't want to be criticized for it. So this would be a standard temptation for humans. And you look at human history, there have been Trump bots of all kinds. You know, Stalin was certainly a Trump bot. Uh, I would say Trump is too. And, um, and, and once you get one and they gain some power because somehow they're able to get away with it, then a lot of people will start imitating them. So I think of, you know, I think the, I think of the Trump, the Trump supporters I know really sound like Hannaby, Hannity wannabes. They just want to feel like whatever they think is always triumphant. They are eternally the heroes. They're playing God, eternally right, righteous, and mighty. So the question for today, that was all by way of short introduction. The question for today is how do you stop them once you've decided you're dealing with the Trump bot? And that's a really big challenge. So I, I'm going to say a couple of things about it. First of all, about what kind of a challenge it is. First of all, it's very clear from history that you can't always. That is, sometimes they have so much power that you just have to wait for them uh, to die out. But by then, you could be dead. And in fact, all of us could be dead. That is, now that we have nuclear weapons and all sorts of other uh, um, menacing potentials, we could end through Trump botics. I actually would diagnose it as, I would. my prognosis is the most likely way for humans to go extinct would be through Trump botting. That's why I think this is such a crucial area to focus on. Um, and if we take it much more down to earth, uh, if your livelihood depends on staying in their good graces um, because you're married to one who holds all the purse strings or because you're a captive of one or because you have no alternative places to work but under a horrible boss who you've decided is a Trump bot, um, you're going to have some trouble. It's not like, I mean, it's not like there's a surefire solution at any level here. That is, you could be misdiagnosing someone as a Trump bot and you could do everything right in order to to make it cost them to be one and still lose. I mean, I marvel at the fact that slavery lasted for 12 generations in the United States, 12 generations. I mean, none of us go back more than five generations, 12 generations. So these are people, uh, I mean, apparently, and I do think of slavery as a kind of Trump botting move. I mean, to be a slave master certainly has that quality about it. Um, so no, it, you can't necessarily solve it, but there are, I'm interested in how you would optimize your chances of making it cost someone to be an asshole. 
how do you make it cost them? And in this, I'm a little different from a lot of people in psychology say that the best approach is to uh, try to find common ground with them, places where you share common values. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do with stubborn people. But I think that actually Trump bots are different from that. I don't think that would work with a Hitler, finding common ground with him. Uh, certainly not meeting halfway. Hey, you want to kill 6 million Jews? We want you to kill zero of us. So let's settle for 3 million. No, that's not how you, <laughs> not how you solve these things. Um, so, so how, but how do you make it cost them? Um, first, I'm saying carefully, you could end up in a lot of trouble, personal trouble, if you try to take on a Trump bot who's got power over you. Um, uh, your life and livelihood and all of that. Uh, you know, take this job and shove it. It's a wonderful thing to say if you can get away with it. And you have to pay attention to whether you can get away with this. Try this at home, but don't, but, but be careful. Don't try it at home. I mean, be, just be careful. It's, <laughs> it's serious. These guys, are, in a way, the, the big question is how do you humbly humble someone who will say or do anything to keep from being humbled? It's a huge question. And if we don't have good answers for it, we're doomed. I mean, it's just terrible. So the humble, how do you humbly do it? That is, you're not going to become an asshole yourself in the process. And yet you are trying to humble them. And yet they will treat it as an attempt to humiliate them. And they will out-escalate you um, in trump botting. So you can out-out, I do not think you can out-trump-bot a trump-bot. That is, you can't become more of an authority than them. You have to use your power which is a different kind of power from the, I'm the authority on everything. You can't outplay God, someone who's playing God. Um, you'll just end up bickering and I know you are, but what am I in? It'll be futile. Um, but there, here, here are two moves I would recommend. As I mentioned in the last uh, um, interview, I think of Trump bots as fake infallibilists. They are pretending they are infallible. And my study of the origins of life, evolution, uh, human uh, development over, you know, the acquisition of language, and I read tons of history, is that we are all fallible. Um, it's not like nobody's perfect because we could be perfect, but we're mortals. I actually think it's much more fundamental than that. The future is actually uncertain for a number of reasons. Um, I have a joke rule that I live by, always do today what worked tomorrow. Um, that's a great rule. It's not actually a rule because we don't know what will have worked tomorrow. And paradoxically, we're all dealing with these tough judgment calls about, uh, you know, there are things that will be solutions in one situation. The very same thing will be a problem in another situation. You've seen this in firefighting. I mean, the very thing that you should do first in one kind of fire is the very last thing you should do in another kind of fire. So those tough judgment calls are built in and they're, no, I don't even think physics is free from these uncertainties. There are reversals, there are, we're dealing with dilemmas. So fundamental to my approach is that I am a fallibilist. I believe that no one can reach 100% certainty, I mean, 100% accuracy about prediction. The world just doesn't work like that. So what we're talking about here is fallibilists battling fake infallibilists. If you look at the history of life, it's all trial and error. And trial means trying. So we're all trying to succeed. 
and we can make better or worse guesses about how to succeed, but they will remain guesses. So as a fallibilist, I believe that no matter how confident I am in a bet, I still have to remain more confident that it is a bet, that all I ever get to do is make better bets, not perfect bets. Okay, so, so the culture wars, from my perspective, are fallibilists fighting against fake infallibilists. Okay, but there's a way in which we can use our fallibilism fiercely. Remember, I said, no matter how confident you are in a bet, some people get all mealy mouth through fallibilism. They say, nobody knows anything. I have to be uncertain about everything. I live in doubt. No, you have to be able to be fierce. We're, we're never going to be able to... Uh, if, if, they can, if they can shame us into doubt and self-doubt, if assholes can shame us into that, which is their game, not that they care about morality at all, but, that, but it works to affect us. We're suckers. We're going to enable them because they can say, well, uh, you're a bully and we'll start to wonder whether we're bullies or you're a name caller. So let's take that one. So this is what I'm, what I'm going to describe here is what I'm going to call uh, inverse psychology. Inverse is recognizing that there are two sides to every coin, that what works in some situations fails in the other situation, that sometimes you have to do A and sometimes you have to do the opposite of A, that there are two sides to the coins. Um, this is overlooked in a lot of our moral pop talk, like you should never be negative or don't be a name caller, um, as if there's a universal rule that you should never call anybody any names. Let's just take that one for a second and talk about it. Okay, if I say you're a nice person, is that name calling? Um, you know, if I call Hitler a monster, is that something I should never do? These are real questions. And in practical life, we all name call. I mean, we do. We, even if you say, you know, even if you call your wife babe, uh, you know, even if you say he's a talented musician, that's name calling. And not only that, don't be a name caller is name calling. A name caller is name calling. So in general, I have found that all of the moral principles that people wield as if they are the formulas by which to live, they all have that self-contradictory quality to them. Don't be a name caller is name calling. You shouldn't be judgmental is a judgment. It's a should. Don't be negative is negative. Be intolerant of intolerance is intolerant. And um, so what, what buttheads will do with that kind of thing is they'll basically turn it into a game of heads I win, tails you lose. And if you don't like that, tails I win, heads you lose. They'll keep flipping the coin on you, but one way or another, they're going to win. They just get cynical about these dilemmas. A fallibilist doesn't. So if someone says to me, ah, you just name called. I said, of course I, uh, rather than getting defensive, like, no, I didn't, or it was okay, or in this situation, acceptable, I say, of course I name called. This is the inverse psychology move. Of course I name called, like you, like everybody. The difference between us is that I pay attention to how, when to name call, uh, when the name calling helps more than harms, and you just pretend that you don't name call while accusing other people of name calling. Uh, you can do this with all of them. You basically um, make them out as weenies, hypocritical weenies, which is what they are, because they claim that they've got these moral rules. They don't live by them. No one does, and no one should. That is, I will. I'll often say, "Look, I don't just. I, I don't mean to name call. I mean to. I mean to name call with surgical precision." 
you asshole. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so you, so you, this is a way of overcoming the tendency uh, for someone who cares about being nice to be bullied around about someone who doesn't care about being nice, but is basically just using any move that enables them to feel right and righteous and mighty. So one of the fascinating things about them is they scold you for not living up to moral standards and laugh at you for caring about moral standards. They play prudish parent when it helps them, and they pe play petulant brat when it helps them. They'll do anything but meet you as an adult to an adult. They'll, they'll jump on either side of that. Either they're the brat who, who laughs at you for caring about morality or the prude. So this is a way around that inverse psychology, and it applies to all these things. Um, uh, let's see, we could take another one. Um, uh, don't try to shame me, they'll say. Okay, well, look at this. Shame on anybody who shames. Another paradox. Of course I shame. Like you, like everyone. You just shame me right now by shaming me for shaming. I'm not interested. I'm not, I'm not trying to never shame. That's absurd. Nor am I trying to pretend that I don't ever, that, uh, nor do I shame recklessly like you just did. No, I'm trying to shame where it helps more than harms. And that's lifelong work. I'm not saying I get it right, it, but at least I care about the damn question. Whereas you just think you can just shame all you want and, and, and shame everybody for shaming. That's an example of inverse psychology. It's, um, it's not easy to do, uh, but it's a, it's a way at least of, of getting yourself out from under the natural human tendency when scolded, I mean, humane tendency, when scolded, to begin to question your own behavior. Um, you should do that with normal, good people. You should not do that with assholes. Assholes can accumulate all sorts of criminal behavior without any consequences and still act like they're the moral authorities. You can't let them get away with that. They have to, it's got to cost them. The second technique that I would recommend um, it would be called tar babying, except that in some circles, the assumption is that tar babying is a racial slur. My point is this. If you go back to African culture, it was called gum babying. A gum baby was a baby made out of gum. So tar baby is a story. It's actually a lesson, I would argue, on how to deal with assholes that comes out of slave culture, the tar baby story that shows up in Uncle Remus. Um, it, but what it came to mean in politics before it stopped being used was to accuse someone of something that no matter what they say in response only makes the accusation stick more. So for example, a, a, a gum baby, that's now my substitute for the word tar baby, out of African culture is, if I said to you, you're being defensive. Now, either you could let it sit in the air, in which case it's kind of sitting there affirmed, or you can say, no, I'm not. And then you've just proved my point. So that would be an example of a gum baby. Now, I, I, and there are others. For example, if, if someone says, uh, you're not funny, or it's not all about you, those are also in the gum baby vicinity. And they're interesting, and I think they're mostly vile, but I would certainly use them when I'm dealing with the Trump bot. When I'm dealing with an asshole, I, I basically operate by the 
assumption that any trick they use, I can use back on them, but I know that I'm using a trick that's bullshit and they don't. So I, you know, that's the only difference. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll play, I'll play them anyway. They, if they're going to use that stuff, and what's often interesting about them is that they are lousy fighters. They can't actually engage in debate. They have a couple of points that they, they parrot. They have a formula. But if you actually show up feisty with them, if you if you show them that not all liberals are mealy mouth apologetics, defensive apologetics, they walk away. They are not really interested in the fight. I think of them as like exhibitionists. They sidle up as if they want a conversation, but they don't. They open their trench coat and show off their stiff little self-importance. And however, if you respond in predictable ways, they have a formula for claiming victory. So if you walk away from them, you're a loser for quitting. If you, uh, uh, if you scold them for pulling out their stiff little uh, self-certainty, uh, they'll call you a prude. Um, if, if you get angry at them, they'll call you upset, you know, so that's what they're used to. So you've got to come at them with something different. And gum babying is fabulous. It's the opposite of paying attention to the topic at hand. So suppose someone came up to you and, um, is, and is telling you that um, critical race theory is, um, is pure evil and has got to be kept out of our schools and all of this. Um, and you could get into a debate about critical race theory. Maybe you don't know much about it. Um, one thing that's often effective to do is to ask them to define their terms. Um, uh, that has stopped people who talk about critical race theory. They have no idea what it means. They don't have an idea what communists mean. They don't have an idea what socialists mean. They don't have an idea what mindfulness means. This happens on the left as much as on the... I mean, we're all humans. We're all tempted to become assholes. I know plenty of people who for example, we use the term mindful as though it simply means everything I like. So if I like it, it's mindful. If it's not, if I don't like it, it's not mindful. Um, you got a version of this through Eckhart Tolle, who I find, who makes my skin crawl. So Eckhart Tolle, who got really popular for a while, from what I understand, there's a resurgence of him. Everything Eckhart Tolle doesn't like is ego, okay? And everything he does like is non is non-egotistical. You ask him to define ego, he doesn't actually get around to it, other than to say, well, it's all the bad stuff. No, but I'm looking for a definition that would actually help me distinguish between an objective definition, not based on your subjective preferences. I mean, you can label what you like with some white hat term like mindful or Christian, you know, but what, are, what do these actually mean? So you can actually flummox them, them but that's not the, that's not the, that's not the gum babying move. The gum baby move is this. These guys are one trick phonies. They got nothing except for their way of playing God. The wild card trump card formula where they can do anything and whatever it is, it's heroic and victorious and right and righteous and mighty. That's all they've got. So that's where you focus. You simply call them out, preferably in front of an audience, that that's all they're doing is they are, they are pretending they're, they're right about everything. And whatever they say in response will confirm your accusation. It's a gum baby. And you never let yourself be led by the nose down to any fake topic. They don't actually care about critical race theory. 
I mean, they'll use any cudgel a couple of months ago. It was potato head, Mr. Potato head before that. It was, uh, you know, it's whatever they're not, they, they clearly don't care about cancel culture. They'll cancel any, you know, they'll cancel right and left what the, or, or politically correct. There's never been a more politically correct prudish snowflake movement than the current epidemic of assholery, which uh, from my perspective, but I, but I think I hold a fair standard. I would say the same thing about them if they were pandering to the left. They don't care about that stuff. It's obvious from their behavior. So you don't focus there. You don't take them on there. You don't pretend like you're still in a conversation with someone who share, who has different values from you. They've gone robotic. They're not actually paying attention to anything other than how they can keep themselves winning. So if you focus there, everything they say in response will become more proof of what you're saying. And you do it relentlessly. Now, there are variations on that that I like. I'm very fond of Steve, uh, of uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's approach. Oh, I call it clone to own, which is, so if you end up on a troll site, and it could be a leftist troll site, it could be a right-wing troll site, I, I got to keep emphasizing this. We happen to be going through an epidemic that I think tends to favor the right more than the left, but next week it'll be the left. It's, you know, everybody wants to play God if they can. So, um, so if you... If you end up in a troll conversation, you pretend you are their biggest fan. These guys are basically engaged in jerking off in public, hoping that they will find adulation. So you, you, you basically, it's sarcasm right below the level of their ability to spot it. So you say, you are so right. I am so convinced by what you're saying. But you also take it a little absurd, but always right under their radar, preferably in the range where anybody else can see what you're doing, but they can't. Because the last thing they want to be is played. And I've had this happen where someone says, where a troll has said, um, I can't tell if you're mocking me. He said that. That's, they're not supposed to say, I can't tell. They're supposed to be able to say, I can tell everything. And I mocked them right back. I said, I'm feeding you beauties, dude. I'm telling you, I adore you. How could you possibly, you know, don't be so sensitive, you know, you chill out. I'm, I'm, and, and even that was mockery, but you have to do it right under their radar because the last thing they want to deal with is uncertainty. And I never would want to be this cruel with normal people, but you've got to make it cost these people. If they are rewarded and they are increasingly, they will take over. So the question is, how do you actually set up fire breaks for assholery wherever it comes from? And that was the longest answer I've ever given to a question on an interview. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but it was a no. Okay. <laughs> no, that was great. That was very concise, and and I loved the flow. Um, okay, good, good. <laughs> no, I. I I didn't want to interrupt. You were okay. Good. Definitely good. had it. So, um, no one lets me talk this long. I had to give my daughter hand signals. It was this first stop soon. And this first stop now. I'm a guy with a lot of mouth. <laughs> I'm wondering if just to be fair, I'd love yeah. an example of, you know, someone, you know, that is, uh, you know, an, an asshole, I mean, I, yeah. liberal, like a liberal asshole. Totally, easily done. 
I can okay. easily do that because I deal with them and I actually I do the same thing with them. It's this, it's it's I yeah. So the the way to prove that it's not what you pretend to believe, but how you strut it. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming that most of us, when we have a major breakthrough in our lives, it's mostly for the safety and freedom we think it affords us and very little for the content. And that happens all around. I mean, that would happen. I was, I was borderline liberal asshole. No, I was an asshole. My family told me so when they were right. When I joined the hippie commune, I was a total smug asshole. Um, no, definitely. And and for all I know, like I said yesterday, I could be the asshole. I'm, as I said in our last interview, I could be the asshole now. I mean, I, I'm not in a position to be an authority on whether I'm an asshole. But let's get to a liberal example. Um, okay, so I'm going to take a, uh, a Buddhist liberal who has decided that love is the answer um, and that therefore because they have embraced that as a theory um, they are the authorities on love and anyone who doesn't love them or challenges them in any way is uh, being unfair unjust and all of that what i'll call narcissism which is the narcissism of saying that's not nice to anything that challenges you. So this person's got all the leftist lingua, lingua. They are they're they're woke. They believe in um, a higher power. They're not religious anymore. They 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 don't like evangelicalism. They're Buddhist and they're um, and they but but they believe there's a higher power and that that higher power wants love and connection for us all to live in harmony. And I don't think they've thought it through at all any more than a libertarian has thought through libertarianism any more than to say, I want more freedom. I mean, it's, it's basically a way of you, you cover, you ornament yourself in bling that makes you feel right, righteous, and mighty, aligned with the higher power. So they don't believe in God anymore, but they believe in God, just not with a white beard. God is this thing in the universe that wants us all to live in harmony by my standards. It just happens to be my standards, says the liberal. Okay, so I'm dealing with this person. And, and I'm talking to them, and um, they say love is the answer. And I say something that challenges what they've said. And they make a, just to make it realistic, they do a, a standard move I call insistent replay. So they got this whole monologue going about how love is the answer and all that. And I drop in, I've been listening patiently and humoring them. And then I drop in to say something. And because I challenged their thought a little bit, they start the whole damn thing over from the beginning. As if the only way I could have possibly uh, disagreed with them was to not understand it. So that's insistent replay, okay? So at some point I say, wait, wait, no, stop. I've heard all of this. I got this. I, and I even repeat it back to them so they know I've got it. It's a very useful technique is to say something back to someone in your own words so that they can no longer say, wait, you couldn't possibly have understood me if you disagree with me. So I pose some challenge to this liberal and they say, that's not nice. Or you're being unkind or you're not being mindful. And I imply inverse psychology, and I say, that's right. I'm not kind always to everyone, nor are you, nor is anyone. You can't possibly be kind to everyone always. Kindness takes effort. We're not talking about lip service kindness. I could love everybody in the abstract. 
but I actually have to deal with the practicalities of kindness, accommodation, all of that. So no, I'm not kind all the time. I'm trying to be kind in the places where it helps more than harms. I'm trying to guess when to be kind and when not. So whether you think this is kind or not um, is kind of immaterial to me. I'm telling you what I think and, um, and, uh, and you, you can't make me shut up by saying that's unkind because like you, like everyone, we're all dealing with the question where to be kind, where not to be kind. That would be an example of that. Uh, if they said you're not being mindful, I did quit dating. I was, I was on the dating circuit for a while. Berkeley, California was going through a phase where a woman would, I mean, every woman I dated, simply anything that they didn't like, they called unmindful. I actually retired from dating because of it. It was just like, no, I, and I would ask them, okay, so what does mindful mean? And they couldn't answer. Well, it's paying attention to everything. Um, you can't. Attention is finite. You can't pay attention to everything. Um, it's paying attention to all the right things. Nice goal. You don't, we have no way of doing that. You know, sometimes the insignificant thing proves significant and vice versa. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's being in the here and now. And I'd ask them, okay, well, so uh, if I'm in the here and now thinking about the past, is that being present in the here and now? And they'd say, yeah. I'd say, okay, so what's, what is, what is being in the here and now mean? You know, it, so it's just things that sound sweet to our ears. We embrace them. We wear them as bling because uh, that's what the cool kids are wearing and we don't think it through. So if they said that's unmindful, I said, yes, everybody's ignorant about something. You can't pay attention to it all. I'm trying to be ignorant about the right things and, uh, and attentive to the wrong things. I fuss in some places. I have a limited fuss budget. I have to allocate my fuss budget. I, you know, I've, someone yesterday uh, texted me and said, you need to study uh, life extension science. And I said, you're a <laughs> this is a stranger, but he had gotten in touch as a kind of a friend. It was on Facebook, actually. I said, you're a stranger telling me what I need to do. Sorry, dude, I fuss elsewhere. Everybody fusses someplace. I've, I'm not, I can't be mindful of everything. So that would be that. But if I, if I wanted to take it further, if I was really trapped with a liberal asshole, I would have to gum baby him. And here's the interesting thing about it is that Gumbay being a liberal or a Republican or a religious or an atheist asshole is generic. It's the same move. Because when you're Gumbay being, you're not paying attention to any of their branding. It's all the same bullshit, different branding. So I'm not taking up the question of critical race theory. That's irrelevant. You can tell from their behavior they don't actually care about the standards they claim are why it's violation. You know, these are the, the critical race theory. If you look at the heart of it, it's, a, it's people saying you shouldn't be offensive to white people who will end up feeling guilty about their ancestor's slavery. Okay, that's exactly what they define as snowflake behavior and exactly what they hate about cancel culture. So if you look at their behavior, it's got nothing to do with that. So my point about the gum babying, where you simply, you stay above whatever topics they want to distract you with. And you simply say, look at this guy's moves. No matter what anyone says, he's always got a way of pretending he's right, righteous, mighty. He's playing God. And they'll say, no, I'm not. Ah, see, did it, there he goes again. And you would do that with a liberal 
you would do it's the same generic message because assholery is generic it's got nothing to do with what we claim to believe and that's what i love about trump is that the guy is 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 pristine asshole it's very hard to imagine that he actually has any beliefs i mean you could mistake stalin for a communist he wasn't he was an asshole i mean he dressed his his assholery up in communism but there was nothing about you know, communism, libertarianism, this stuff will never be tried because as soon as you break ground to, to, to make for a new society, the assholes fall, flow in. So they all end up down in the detours into assholery. You know, the ideologies will never work that way. We don't get to reform a society. You, you break, you, you loosen things up, you create chaos, the tyrants move in. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Did that answer you? Did that satisfy you about the liberals? Because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Because I practice with them all the time. I, you know, the majority of my friends are liberals. I, well, commune friends. <laughs> well, you know, when we when we spoke after the last interview, you know, I, I told you that I wanted to discuss critical race theory, and what's funny is that I've met people on both sides of the aisle that have an argument but it's not accurate it's not right no so that's the point so there are cults we don't have we talk about countercultures but we don't talk about counter cults and counter cults are really interesting this is a, an, an asshole epidemic is usually not a single strain but that strain and its opposite so for example communism was totally an asshole cult the way it played out, whatever you think of the original ideas, the ideas never get manifested in practice, and it was a total disaster. And I have an undergrad degree in Soviet uh, Soviet history. I, I, you know, after leaving the commune, I got really interested in how how cults happen, and it was this macro cult. But the Ayn Rand libertarian cult is a total counter cult reaction to it. You know, I got interviewed on a bunch of libertarian, on a few libertarian shows. And for that, I had to read libertarian literature. The stuff read exactly like Marxism. It's the same damn formula that science proves that this is inevitable is what it was doing. And it was just saying the opposite thing. So different branding, same bullshit um, uh, was my impression about it. So yes, what we're seeing right now is that we'll see stridency, a kind of um, braying that happens and and i it's important to think about the personal interpersonal version of it if you get in a fight with someone a spouse a friend a co-worker or something at some point your effectiveness in the battle is going to end up making more of a making more mattering much more to you than any of the content of what you say and at that point it's animal braying that takes happens to take the form of words because we're word users, but the words meanings are inconsequential. So you will have what I call inf uh, infallibility battles, and it's incredibly how fa incredible how fast we can fall into one. I mean, someone can be out provoking infallibility battles. I think the Republicans are doing that right now. The Tantrumplicans are basically saying, it, it, "What I mean by it is, an infallibility battle is." Either I'm wrong about everything and you're right about everything, or I'm right about everything and you're wrong about everything. As if it's like it's a winner-takes-all battle um, 
to the death for who's right about everything and who's wrong about everything. And you can fall into these quite, uh, quite unintentionally. So for example, you're sitting with a buddy and you say that the, the Beatles White Album came out in 1970. And he says to you, because you just had three beers or whatever, he says, you think the White Album came out in 1970? You don't know anything, do you? Even that can get you started on an infallibility battle. And at that point, you're fighting for your survival. Well, no one's infallible. No one is infallible. It's like you don't get to win it all. That's it's a stupid kind of fight. So yes, you'll you'll get that around critical uh, critical race theory, without either side really knowing what they're talking about. It just becomes this kind of grandstanding flailing. It's like blind mole rats flailing at each other. Um, if you want to get a debate going on it, uh, that's a that's a whole other topic. Um, but. And, and you would find with, I think, on that topic that the people who are parroting Sean Hannity or whoever, um, they are really stuck on the, infall on the infallibility buzz. And I just, I want to point that out. It is such a high. Being an asshole is a total high. I mean, it's irresistible for most of us. At least I got to say, it's just really tempting. It's like, it's like baklava. It's just so damn good. Uh, baklava with whipped cream on it. I mean, it's just perfect. And that's what it's like to be an asshole. When we say being an asshole doesn't pay, yeah, we hope it doesn't pay. In fact, it does pay mightily if you can get away with it. And that's why we got to work on it because it doesn't pay in the long run. We're dead in the long run if, if, if people simply head into this infallibility battle, infallibility fantasy thing. Um, yeah, so there's that about the critical race theory. And notice that I barely talked about critical race theory. We could, but at this point, I feel like every time we address some topic that they dangle in front of us, we are actually enabling psychopaths. And as any social worker will know, the last thing you do is you take psychopaths at their word. You don't get to say, do you mean that to a psychopath? Or, well, here's where you might be wrong. That's a total misreading of you, of them, and they love it when you misread them as actually caring about what they claim to care about. That's what they want. <laughs> oh, man, this has been great. I, I wish I had had this conversation with you so many years ago. <laughs> I wish I had it with myself back then. I've wasted my whole life learning things I now already know. <laughs> there there are so many subjects out there that people debate about with limited information and you know it's they're they're arguing as if they're an expert because they saw it on fox or because they listened to it on npr yeah that's or... right <laughs> Which is, which is the interesting thing that it, it is becoming more and more evident that the world is a cluster flux. That is, it's, get, it's, it's clearly getting harder and harder to figure out what's going on. So when you, when you end up seeing these people who, have, who, who claim that in all of this complexity, they now know how it all works, there is something suspicious about that. Um, there was a wonderful meme going around this morning. I don't know if you saw it. It's, it's a two panel. Oh, here it is. I'm tired of being a specialist in infectious, infectious, infectious diseases and virality. Today, I decided to become an expert on Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and Jeremy, 
thank you so much for for agreeing to come on again. Um, this was this was perfect, uh, and really ties into everything that's going on today in, in the news and in, in government and policy society. Yeah, I I think the well, let me ask you. For somebody that wants to be on the right side. Yep. I like good. <laughs> how, how do you know? How do you know which side is right? Oh, you don't. You don't. You make your best guesses. I mean, and I get this out of science. In science, you have to face the, the, like, the, the possibility, the strong possibility, that you will have spent your whole life barking up the wrong tree. That is, science is like a search party to talk about first responders. You send out a bunch of people to search for explanations and, and, and find good answers. And some find them and others were part of the search party and they didn't find them. Does that mean that they were useless? Of course not. It's trial and error. So I try to make good bets, but I really do have a kind of peace of mind that comes from knowing I've already pre-grieved the possibility that I wasn't only not, I was not only not right, but that I turned out to be a bad influence in the world. I'll give you an example of this. I happen to be someone, I'm very on the fence about religion. I think it's actually fabulous escapism. And if I needed more escapism and didn't already have other ways of getting it, I'd, I'd do it that way. But I also think it's really dangerous. Um, and there's lots of evidence for that. Okay, so sometimes I talk like a strident atheist talking about how laughable religion is, how much it becomes an invitation to become an asshole. Okay, well, if if I prevail in that, there is, I have no confidence that humanity could survive without religion. I have no confidence it could survive with it. Um, but I have no confidence that we could survive without it. I could have ended up being on the wrong side of that issue. Now, I've gotten some recent resolutions to that because I really spend a lot of time trying to demote the highfalutin or elevated forms of escapism to an elevated level for all escapism. So there are these escapisms, escapisms that are sacred cows. You cannot talk about them without them telling you that's not nice, that's immoral, that's unfair, all of that. Um, I think they need to get off their high horse, but I want to elevate a high horse for all escapism. So for me, frankly, um, I think I can get as much wisdom and as much escapism from Marvel Comics superhero movies as I do from religion. I think in some ways they're actually better theologies, they're pantheistic. You know, monotheism will tend to be about someone who's always right and always perfect and all of that. I mean, I hate to say it, but I don't think that God was invented in man's image. I think he was invented in an asshole's image, at least the popular versions. It's a way of becoming an asshole by humbling yourself before your imaginary friend who you can name drop, um, and then lording yourself over everyone because you're his ally. So you got this imaginary friend 
who is at the cosmological level and agrees with you. So I like pantheism better in that respect. But if someone wants to say, no, my religion is better, that's fine. But you got to keep it on a down low. You cannot, you know, you don't get to claim eternal triumph like that. So my interest in safe escapism is how I deal with it. But back to the point, there's still a good chance that everything I'm doing in my best effort to do good and do right in the world will, in retrospect, have proven not only wrong, but bad. And I cannot escape that. That's not like there's someplace I could go where I get the big picture and finally resolve it. That's why I'm a fallibilist. And that's why I think fallibilism is the greatest source of peace of mind. Not that you fall short of some perfection, but that you have to recognize we are building the road as we travel it. It's a windy, squirrely road. We don't know where it goes. We're guessing, making our best guesses how to live forward. Um, and we can make really good bets that turn out bad, just as in firefighting. That is not, I mean, if they're bets, they're not 100% certainty. So that means even if you bet on the 99% best outcome, there's a 1% chance that even your best guess will have turned out wrong. Does that mean you guessed wrong? No, you guessed right and it turned out wrong. It's like that in life and has always been. So there's peace of mind for me in that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I've never really thought about well life, philosophy in those in those terms, you know, infallible, fallible. Yeah, yeah. I I want to say that I I believe the way that I've um, kind of led is as a fallibilist, knowing that people are going to make mistakes. Right. And right. saying, and, that's how you learn. Sure, I want, that's right. I want you yeah. to try. Yeah, that's right. You would, um, so there's the learning from it. And there's also, so, you know, I'm sure you, you uh, we talk about false positive and false negatives, wrong yeses and wrong noes, simple as that. Or you could say regretted yeses and regretted noes. So on any decision, Let's say, should I join this or should I not join this? So let's say, should I join this? It's a yes, no question. So that means there's uh, there's a right yes, there's a right no, there's a wrong yes, there's a wrong no. So the wrong yes on should I join this is you said yes and you regret it later. Turns out that it was a bad move. A wrong no would be you didn't join it and later on you regret it. Okay, so th and this is the heart of decision theory. Okay, so my goal is to minimize those. But, and I can hold the ideal of never making either kind of mistake, but that idealization is an idealization. That is, I'm assuming that all life long, I will be correcting and adjusting and trying to minimize both kinds of errors. And it's not just with, should I join this? It's with, should I say this? Should I uh, hold out for delayed gratification? That is, should I, you know, should I hold or fold? Uh, should I quit this? Um, uh, uh, should I ignore this? Should I pay attention to it? That we're just all dealing with those tough judgment calls. And on every one of them, there's a false positive and a false negative, a wrong, a regretted yes and a regretted no possibility. Live and learn, but it doesn't mean you could ever master it. And that's the heart of the fallibilist approach. You, you know, you can master it in movies. This is one of the things because you can write a movie backwards. You know, that's the difference. And so now we're watching all these high production value, vivid, vivid movies like James Bond. And people are thinking, you could live that way. No, you can't. You can't live backwards.
<laughs> you're living forward. You're guessing what to do today to that work tomorrow. <laughs> it's a great disappointment to me that I'm not James Bond after all, but I can live with it. I can go <laughs> pretend I'm James Bond in the evening and then during the day get back to reality. <laughs> yeah, we got to do this again. <laughs> yeah, any old time. I'm around. It's really nice talking with you, my brother. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.